Good afternoon, everybody. This is Bill Hamlet uh, from the Naval Institute. This is Proceedings Ep- uh, Podcast Episode Number Thirty Five. Uh, we're live from Beach Hall on Facebook Live today. Uh, Bill Hamlet, I'm the uh, editor in chief of Proceedings. I've been in that job uh, since Fred Rainbow's retirement now for about nine days. So far, so good. Uh, and joining me is uh, my podcast co-host Ward Carroll. Ward is the director of outreach at the Naval Institute, uh, retired commander, F-14 Rio, uh, and author of the Punk's War, Punk's Wing, Punk's Fight series of novels. So, Ward, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's great to be here in Annapolis in a hot summer day with our friends, the midshipmen interns here, as our podcast production team. Yeah, we just finished the July editorial board meeting talking about everything that's going to go into proceedings in August, talking about... Uh, articles that are coming up for probably this fall, uh, not slated yet, but things that we voted on today. Uh, so our uh, editorial board meeting uh, happens once a month. We that was have, your first one at the helm. That was my first as the editor-in-chief. Uh, it was a great, great meeting. Uh, for people who aren't aware of the editorial board uh, of the Naval Institute, uh, as our chairman and our, our CEO said today, uh, it's the heart and soul of the Naval Institute. Um, we have uh, E9 through 06, Navy Marine Corps Coast Guard serving on our, uh, all active duty serving on our editorial board. Uh, they bring uh, a depth and breadth of experience, and they're, they're currently on the waterfront, and so they know what's actually happening in the pulse of the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Uh, and so every feature article that goes into proceedings is vetted by and uh, discussed by the editorial board. Uh, we get really great comments from them about things that were in the article that maybe needed to be plussed up, some things that we maybe need to do some fact-checking on, uh, et cetera. So it's it's terrific having them. Uh, the discussions every month we have uh, about the articles, and then we also have a free play session where we find out from them the, the topics that are very timely happening that perhaps haven't been in proceedings and uh, ideas on authors we can reach out to to write about a particular topic. Uh, so it was great. And we had people on the phone joining us from Norfolk today. We had one of our editorial board members joining us from Garmisch, Germany. Uh, so far and wide, uh, they're, they're here either in person in Annapolis or, uh, you know, on the telecon. So it was great. Yeah, every time I attend one of those, I'm reminded how rigorous the discussion is. You know, it really is a healthy dialogue. And uh, nothing's taken for granted. For what So what shows up in Proceedings Magazine uh, has seriously been vetted in a way that uh, – you know, it, it's, it, it merits uh, reaching the pages of proceedings. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's jump right na- in now to our guest today. We have been um, trying for a couple months now uh, with our schedule and his schedule uh, to get a guy who, in, in our view, in our readers' minds, is a rock star. Uh, so we have on the line from Boston, August Cole, who wrote a piece in the May issue of proceedings called Automated Valor. He's also the co-author of a very popular and successful novel called Ghost Fleet that came out, I think, in 2015. He co-wrote with uh, Peter Singer about en- envisioning a future war with, with China scenario in the Pacific. Uh, just a, a riveting novel. Uh, and also, I can tell you, as somebody who studied the Chinese Navy and the Chinese military up close and personal, uh, it was... Um, uh, alarmingly accurate in, in my in my perspective. So, uh, August, great to have you on the podcast. Great to join you both, and congratulations again on the new role of proceedings. It's a great Th- publication. Thank you very much. Thanks. Even better with you uh, at the helm. I appreciate that. 
Um, so, August, your your piece called Automated Valor, I know uh, because we worked with you on it, uh, that you wrote this for the British Army, helping them envision uh, the future of urban combat, uh, new technologies coming into the fold, and uh, looking out maybe 20 years in the future. So for our, our listeners who don't know you or who haven't read this piece, you are a bit of a futurist. You've written uh, a novel now. You've written a number of things uh, that have been published in magazines from the Atlantic, uh, you know, now proceedings, um, where you look at sort of trends in technology and w- what might happen to warfare. So talk about this piece a little bit. Talk about how you got your ideas. Talk about how the, the British Army received it. Well, it, it was a, a real privilege to have a story run in, in proceedings, especially because, you know, this is ultimately a exploration of the future of conflict from a non-U.S. point of view. And that was one of the things I felt really interesting about this as a, as a challenge, because when we often discuss the future of war, we sometimes necessarily explore it from the perspectives that we know best, either institutionally or individually. And the reality of how conflict is today and obviously will be in the future is, is far more complicated than that. Uh, coalition operations are going to be an enduring facet of, you know, for example, the American way of war. No matter the turmoil in NATO right now, for you're still going to see the you know, transatlantic relationship ebb and flow, perhaps. But nonetheless, we have to start thinking through not just how American forces will be changed by artificial intelligence, robotics, but how will those of our allies? And in particular, thinking about those changes, not just in the singular technical sense, um, you know, so I felt like a story like this was a way to go after some of these big headline technologies like artificial intelligence, artificial general intelligence, robotics, and flip a few assumptions around, take on some new perspectives. And the value in, in doing this for, for the, the British Army's Futures uh, Forces Group, which is part of their concepts branch, was you know, being able to bring in an outside perspective because they, like our own services, have efforts trying to understand what is coming, you know, where we are now and what are the benchmarks and milestones. But by, I think, having someone who's maybe not wed to either conventional or uh, doctrinal perspectives who can kind of enjoy pushing buttons a bit um, in, a, in a serious sense, not in a flip way, be, be able to really liven and kind of spice up that let's set up that dialogue about what the future of conflict holds for them, but also, as I said, you know, for, for their allies, which naturally includes the U.S. So, August, let's, for the audience who's not familiar with you, let's, let's back up a little bit and give a little bit of your bio, because um, a listener could wonder, how does one become a futurist? Uh, how does one become a military expert? And then how did you get into the fiction realm uh, in, in most... Uh, Curiously, yeah, I tend to, to leapfrog over that. I'm so eager to jump ahead. I forgot to, to look back a bit. So my my background is really in uh, both history, but also you know tracking down facts in the present. My prior life, I was a journalist uh, up until about let's see, maybe nine years ago when I left the Wall Street Journal, where I've been covering defense and intelligence contracting to make a clean break with journalism to enter the think tank realm and really start trying to use other tools around writing, concept development that were more fiction-oriented or narrative in, in understanding these really interesting to me gray areas and got the pike technologically and how that was going to fuse together and, and changing conflict. 
being a journalist is, is a privilege and, and it's a fantastic profession. And I got to a point where I felt challenged though in my own ability to be satisfied because there is so much a focus on what's happening right now or just happened a moment ago that you don't get the bandwidth to look ahead. And in many ways, that's not really the mandate necessarily, but that's where I was most enthused. And so I, I kind of bit by bit over the last, uh, you know, eight years have been kind of prototyping, if you will, almost every year in an experimental sense, just different activities working with different groups. I've been uh, involved with the Atlantic Council for a number of years now uh, on their Art of the Future project and other efforts. I've worked at a consulting company called Avacent. I now work for Spark Cognition, which is an artificial intelligence company focused on a lot of these very practical features questions. And so it's a, it's a bit like asking someone, how do you become a journalist? That there are many paths you can go down uh, to get to that endpoint, and everyone is different. Uh, and in my case, it came from, I think, the still abiding hunger to understand what's next. And the tools that I think I have that are best to do that are, are writing and thinking about things in a fictional narrative sense. So so for me, that, that hunger, that interest is really what drives everything I do. Uh, everybody I work with, you know, get to collaborate with, uh, whether it's partnering with Pete Singer on fiction to, like I said, working with Spark Cognition. So, so my... You know, kind of mission if I, that I'm on and, and, and will be on is you know, really you know, basically trying to understand the future of conflict and, and its most human dimension amidst all this really exciting technological change. So uh, just I'd like to drill down a little more on the fiction pivot. Um, so your bio is a real serious one, right, in terms of, a, you, know, you say, Wall Street Journal, military and technology, and you've been with think tanks, and that sort of so, was Ghost Fleet your first foray into published fiction? I, I'd say my first foray was into unpublished fiction. Right. <laughs> I wrote I wrote a whole manuscript after I, I quit the Wall Street Journal about uh, it was set maybe three to four years in the future uh, about private military contractors running clandestine operations in, in Iran, and it never got published. It led to some great things that that ultimately you know, became my relationship with my book agent, my fictional ties to Pete Singer. Um, and it also, most importantly, proved that I could sit down, you know, every morning and write, you know, 800 words, and you know, over the course of six months or so, churn out, you know, 90,000. Yeah, that's that's tough. It, that's tougher than maybe and, the and listener realizes. <laughs> but you know, the the way I thought about that, because my background before I got to the journal was in the financial journalism business, and I spent a lot of the time writing newswire type stories, which don't leave a lot of room for anything but facts. What what it does do, though, is every day you're writing. Every day you're writing way more than you want. And and sometimes it's not as interesting as you wish it was. Um, and, and the pace is grinding, and there's it's sort of a zero-defect policy, specifically if you're writing like financial news, news headlines. So what I realized, and it took me a while to figure this out, uh, it wasn't really until I was deep into writing Ghostly, was that by writing every single day when I didn't want to, when I had to, because if you don't do it right, you're going to get fired, it helped professionally. And that's been a really good lesson that I've tried to pass along, that there are jobs we all have to do at certain times that are invaluable in shaping who we get to be later. And so it's sort of hard sometimes to step outside your present self and see into the future. Uh, and I'm not sure I had that foresight. You know, I know I didn't have that foresight you know, in my, my early 20s, which is you know, 20 years ago, um, to say, oh, yeah, this is setting the groundwork for a you know budding career in, in writing fiction that'll be taken seriously in the defense realm. And, and that certainly would have been what if I'd written like a blank slate and you know, described your, the job you want. I would have, that's what I would have put, but it, but it was invaluable. And, and so I think having that perspective in the middle of those kinds of 
uh, cycles where you may not be exactly doing what you want, but trying to understand how that how that helps. And, and if I unpack that a bit further, I was working for an online startup at the time uh, with CBS Market Watch for very you know clear reasons because they were pioneering online media. So that some of these things, you know, I like the startup environment, the kind of freewheeling part of that. So some of these things do uh, you know tie together, I think, in some subconscious ways. But but the transition to your to kind of tie it back to your point about going from fact to fiction. Um, is is not a linear one, and and I think that's that's sometimes uh, scary, and there's a lot of risk to that, but also an indication that there may be an opportunity, because it means that other people haven't done that before, and and that's something as well that only comes with perspective after you've kind of wondered is this going to work or not, um, and and I think that's I think endemic of anybody who's trying to do something experimental on uh, uncertainty about what's coming on the horizon. So. Non-writers would tend to say, oh, it's fiction, that means you get to make it all up, and so they, they sort of think that that lets you off the hook. Um, was that your experience, uh, you know, relative to your journalistic writing? My approach with, with fiction has been uh, very informed by my, my journalistic writing, in part because I have felt like if you want to stretch people's imagination the most important way to do that is to give them enough things, whether it's facts, whether it's characters that are familiar or credible so that when you really want to blow their mind, you are being very judicious about how you do that. Uh, the sci-fi writer William Gibson, I think, does that very well in his novels from the 80s and, and 90s about really understanding kind of where technology was, was changing society and culture. Who was that? What, what? I missed the name. What? William Gibson. William Gibson, okay. He, he wrote Count Zero. Yeah, uh, you know, kind of a seminal cyberpunk book. There's writers uh, who are in that same vein producing similar work today, like Paolo Bacalagupi, who wrote The Wind-Up Girl uh, and The Water Knife. You know, who did Snow Crash? Because you say cyberpunk. Uh, Neil, why I yeah, Neil Stevenson yes, is another yes. example, too. And, and the, see that reaction, right? I mean, those are writers that really understand how to world build how to kind of capture our imagination, but to do so in ways that are very much reflections of the world that we're in now. So technologies shift and drift, but they also make leaps, you know, in kind of very select ways. And, and I think that's part of that, that understanding of the importance of facts when you're, when you're making stuff up. So, uh, August, this piece, Automated Valor, which uh, starts on page 68 of the May issue of Proceedings, and it's uh, it's six or 7,000 words. It's one that we did not have enough room to put all of it in the print magazine, and so it was the first time we had experimented with uh, starting a story. Uh, we also commissioned some original art for this piece, so it starts three pages in the magazine and it says to read the rest of it go to our website and read the rest online so all of it's online all of it is in front of our pay our member paywall uh, and always will be um, and it, it's just a it's a very exciting story that grabs the reader right off the the get-go so I, I want to read just the the first paragraph or so so that readers or listeners who haven't read it can get a sense of what this is about so it starts off Port de Djibouti, Djibouti, Free Trade Zone, April 2039. Sticky's seat began vibrating, a resonant warning from deep inside the British Commonwealth Legion high-speed fighting vehicle, a marathon HSVF. Then the gunner felt the closing Chinese bot swarm almost in her teeth, as if the sound were coming from her and the crew, not a fast-approaching enemy. Move, 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 she shouted. The closer the threat, the more her harness tightened, shielding her behind the combat couch's blast-resistant wings. So this is its a story about a crew of a 
uh, fighting vehicle in Djibouti in a uh, close urban combat. It, the, much of the, the action actually takes place in a parking garage. Uh, and there's some really neat plot twists. I won't give it away uh, about the role of artificial intelligence and some, you know, high-tech uh, weapons technology. But it's also, uh, you, you know, one of the things that you brought up for the British Army with this was thinking about a, you know, what their force is going to look like, right? And you've got people in the 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 British Army. It's a legion army. It's a foreign legion. You've got a Polish. The the driver and mechanic is a uh, a Polish-born. Uh, character who only goes by the initial C. Uh, so that that whole idea, not just the technology, but also the command and control, and sort of the you know the human side of what the future uh, fighting force will look like in 2039. How, how did that idea uh, evolve in your head? You know, when, when we try to think about the future, we often go after a very specific facet of it. You know, what is my smartphone going to look like in five or ten years? Will it be implanted behind my ear? You know, will the battery last a year? That sort of thing. But but the reality of the way the world changes is things happen at different paces depending on where you are in it. Uh, there are often unintended consequences from uh, policies or inventions or you know commercial or scientific breakthroughs that that have you know massive relevance in the in the conflict domain. And so here, I felt like because I had known that the British Army was working on this question from the perspective of you know, how they viewed today's conflicts and their foresight activities that you know, presumed a lot of the things that we would take for granted today would be true in the future. And I wanted to unpack a lot of that and really think about the basic assumptions. Uh, some of them are, are obviously in play right now, like is a tank relevant in tw- 20 you know, years out? Yeah, what, is, what is a tank? Uh, should it be crude or autonomous? I mean, those are kind of a conventional thing uh, a, co- a conventional way to kind of you know think about that, but then you start asking yourself, well, well, who who's going to be in a national army? And then you ask yourself, well, why do we need national national armies? What will they be? What will they be fighting over? And why will people want to serve? Uh, and and that re- led me down some really interesting rabbit holes that that I, I kind of got wind of just by thinking about some of the, the trends today that I find really interesting, like the notion of e citizenship. You know, Estonia is pioneering this right now. Is a way of, of, I mean, it's arguably as much about national resilience as it is economic advantage. Uh, but it seemed to me that with, you know, Britain changing its place in the world with Brexit, its relationship to Europe, uh, and, and arguably Asia, that trying to reimagine how that society might evolve and change from today, it seemed to me really, really interesting to think about the legacy of the Commonwealth uh, in the traditional sense being reborn uh, as a kind of e-citizen concept. And, of course, that has implications for foreign policy because if that is an expansive population-driven affiliation globally, you know, that, that obviously runs into the more physical aspect of, like, one belt, one road from China's point of view. So you could really start to think, well, if I'm imagining conflict in the 2030s, I'm, I'm trying to think about still the Brits and the Russians squaring off over stuff out of Europe. But I, I wanted to come up with something totally different or um, unconventional that, that I thought actually could be useful. And this isn't to say that I think this is the future that, that is you know, going to unfurl, but it was a way to be as uh, hopefully inspiring to people trying to think through what assumptions they have that they're really locked into and, and what they need to do to kind of, um, um, you know, kind of crack those crack those open. You know, Ghost Fleet had this same sort of idea behind it as well. You know, what are our assumptions about how the Chinese military is innovating, how it's training, 
how it's acquiring and how ultimately fight. And, and when we started writing that book now, you know, it was six years ago, essentially, um, we were in a different place in that conversation and it felt like a really good opportunity with fiction to do so, uh, at a, at a novel length format. And here with a short story, which, you know, is, as you said, you know, six, six, seven thousand words or so and, uh, a much more digestible and kind of compressed, uh, format. It allows people to really dive into that and then hopefully walk away going, wow, I want to think through, um, you know, the way that I was approaching a, a certain problem or not. Um, and, and one of the things I think that's interesting about this, too, is that you know, I tried to really think about characters um, and, and what are the qualities, you know, as both individuals, but also in the, in the system sense, um, you know, in terms of things like combat leadership. And so I'm a civilian and, and always have been, so I'm obviously going outside my, my you know, knowledge zone here, but trying to extrapolate forward the very notions of leadership under stress and thinking through the way that we're relating to technology today and looking to it for ways to enhance our everyday lives, uh, even in just kind of a civilian commercial sense. And that's happening in the military operational side too. But ramming, you know, ramming all the kind of conventional ways we understand like Siri today aside and saying, well, what if that, that had an implication for tactical operations? You know, what if the most charismatic person in your unit wasn't a human? Um, you know, those sorts of things to me are, are, are really fun to think about. It kind of pushed a story like this more into science fiction, maybe than than something like Ghostly was. But I, again, I feel like it's worth you know, two decades out really pushing the boundaries. Yeah, I mean, this is why I can't write sci-fi. You know, <laughs> the, the, what you've just posited, you know, I, just not how my mind works, right? Um, and, and that's 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 amazing. Like what you just said about maybe the most charismatic person in a any sort of you know, situation isn't a human, right? You know, it's just fantastic. That, that's a great, um, sort of, yeah. That's a great quote for this. It really if, is. If we're yeah. if we're writing this podcast up as a as a proceedings <laughs> article, that would be the pull quote right there. Exactly. Yeah, uh, I love it. Um, I wanted to touch on without giving away too much, um, but you know, the story about this marathon HSFV. So that that uh, vehicle has got some human beings on board, right, that are the crew, and you've got this dialogue between them, which is just fantastic dialogue. And then you bring in, you know, there's a discussion that they have because they're sort of a lightweight, uh, rapidly mobile vehicle, um, lightly armored, et cetera. And then there's a, a point in the battle where they talk about whether they're going to get any support from the heavy firepower, which is this Royal Hussars uh uh, heavy combat team, which is tanks, 70-ton brutes that were the dominant armored vehicles at the start of the 21st century. In each platoon of four, you write, one tank was conventionally crewed by two soldiers while three ran autonomously under low-profile turrets that, that looked like storks. And so this reminds me of some of the things that we're seeing now being written um, for proceedings by people out in the fleet talking about the combination of manned and unmanned, right? Where, you know, you've got on, on an LCS, uh, you've got an uh, SH-60 helicopter manned, and you've also got these uh, MQ-8 fire scouts unmanned, and they're trying to figure out the tactics of, you know, how does the unmanned uh, aircraft help the manned aircraft uh, in w what particular um, mission sets? Is it better to use the unmanned out as the lead or the manned aircraft out as the lead? How do they complement each other? Uh, it, it's, it's really interesting. And, and there's a lot of, um, you know, from we're hearing from junior, junior pilots out there that they're doing some interesting experiments right now trying to figure that out, right? The, the tactics are being written despite the fact that the technology was introduced. 
now the fleet's out there improvising and figuring out how to how to make it all work. So based on that setup, August, and you've been around, you know, a lot of active duty. I mean, we we were all in San Diego a few months ago at uh, at our West convention, and you sat on a panel, and there were a whole bunch of age sixty guys in the audience. How do you think the average naval officer is wired for innovation? I think one of the really interesting kind of concepts the Navy has to work with, and I know that they've played with this in the past, but the the concept of the, the ship itself being a floating lab, and obviously standardization and doctrine and, and tactics are integral to the size of a fleet like we have and the training and resourcing of, of the crews and you know, listed officers. But I also am intrigued by the notion of heterogeneity from a technological sense, uh, the idea that non-standardization can confer operational advantage. So imagine each regional c- command, imagine even each ship had its own way of solving certain problems because it was so equipped with software, manufacturing on board, uh, a mindset, most importantly, that allowed it to, to do so. So that, for example, the operating tactics in the Persian Gulf would be different than the East China Sea and how you'd integrate a fire scout and a, and a, and a, and a you know, H-60 uh, for submarine hunting or for counter-swarm defense. The, the reason, you know, I think that's, that heterogeneity is increasingly important is that we have such powerful simulation and processing capabilities and we can share information so quickly now that giving an adversary a way to scale uh, an exploit or tactical advantage is a real, like, almost existential risk. And this goes, this goes against, like, the thinking that we've used in a lot of organized militaries, if not, you know, civilian bureaucracies, be it government or business. Um, and it's very difficult to allow that to, I think, grow and become, you know, for lack of a better word, normalized. Uh, you know, there's obviously exceptions in the special operations community because numbers are smaller. But thinking about this at scale, you know, if you had a 300 and, you know, I don't know exactly what our fleet will actually get up to. Let's say it's a 355-ship fleet, and, and there was an incredible amount of variety, uh, both at a technical, uh, cultural, and an and, 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 and operational you know, perspective about how, how problem sets got solved. So if you, if you kind of reverse the, the, the perspective on this and start to think about it from a problem set first, uh, approach, it becomes really, really interesting. And so, you know, there, there's an opportunity at hand, but it goes, you know, it runs against the grain for all the things that I think, you know, the Navy probably holds dear uh, for very good reasons, too. And so, you know, there are ways to experiment with this, uh, and I think that probably makes a lot of sense to start doing that sooner than later. You know, in the story, I talk about a Marine uh, operating group called the Third Marine Combined Mechanical Operations Group. It's a throwaway reference in there because this is a, a group fighting alongside the, the Legion in support of the British uh, force, uh, as well as some Kenyan contractors on a kind of quick uh, tour with them. But the idea, though, that that technology, when it's most impactful, becomes transparent and just easily integrated into our daily lives in the same way that you know large-screen smartphones have, um, the way that social media has, that the sorts of bureaucratic catch-up to that, you know, is it a lagging or a leading indicator? And, you know, I think some of the efforts uh, to do that, you know, from the Marines right now under Commandant Miller are really interesting because there's sort of a, a, a quite aggressive approach to rethinking everything from what kind of weapons should, should a, you know, Marine fire team carry to, you know, how far down into the force should you push 
you know, off-the-shelf unmanned aerial vehicles. Um, so, so these sorts of constructs have to catch up with, you know, this opportunity. Uh, and I think it's hard sometimes to lead, for example, you know, from, from the fleet, so to speak, because of, you know, the, for very good reasons. But I think that's where some of the opportunity is, too, to introduce some of that heterogeneity, allow that experimentation uh, in the same way that the Navy has done in, in smaller groups before, but I think could expand much, much more broadly with, with probably not much ill effect. There's probably a lot of benefit. And what you just said about, you know, uh, innovation on the fly and experimentation and technology transparency um, hearkened me, drew me to uh, an article that's in the July issue of Proceedings where we have uh, Naval War College Professor Milan Vigo, who's been writing for Proceedings for many years, uh, and, and his article is called Mission Command and Zero Error Tolerance Cannot Coexist. Uh, and and mm-hmm. he he points out, which I think gets to the bureaucracy and innovation appetite that a big organization like the Navy or the Marine Corps may have, right, or may not have. Um, and and Milan is bringing out the point that in World War II we had these incredible leaders, Spruance, King, uh, um, Admiral Nimitz, uh, each had made mistakes and and were permitted to make mistakes earlier in their careers. Uh, but they've been able to experiment and then grow and, and learn from their uh, from their mistakes. Uh, and this idea that you just raised about experimentation and being willing to try new things and try them on the fly, to try and to fail, uh, there's always a, you know, there's a tension in uh, rules of engagement. There's a tension in uh, an organization that uh, is funded, you know, by Congress and has oversight and all these things. Uh, where you have to, you know, bureaucratically program what your future, you know, budget's going to be. And at the same time, you, you got to kind of build in some flexibility into the force. You have to build into your young people that it's okay to experiment. It's okay to experiment and have mistakes. You can't have catastro- catastroph- yeah, catastrophic mistakes um, in peacetime. Uh, but you can have some mistakes and you can try new things and you can try to figure out, okay, is this going to work? It's not going to work. Uh, and I think that's a... Um, it's a theme that your article, Automated Valor, sort of touches on some of those things, right? Some of that, it's like, okay, we're, we're trying new things here. And maybe the smartest uh, character in the, in the vehicle or in the, in the military scenario isn't a human being. Um, what's that going to mean for us? So uh, you, you wrote for Proceedings a couple of years ago. I think it was in 2016, just before I got here, an article about the value of fiction in helping the military experiment and think about, you know, uh, various futures. Um, I forget what that article was called, but talk about that one a little bit, too. Sure, that was uh, the May 16 issue, and it was a really nice moment to be able to, uh, you know, put an article like that into proceedings because I felt like it was an acknowledgement that there is now room to do things differently and and you know the idea that art and artists can impact national security you know is not a it's not a mainstream idea and that was the title of the piece uh but i felt like in making the case in in the piece in in part because we had been working at the time with the marine corps war fighting lab futures directorate and that that allowed us to i think really you know prove that there was i think value not just to a small group of people within the Marines, but throughout their larger you know, Navy and Marine community, that fiction could help, for example, carry the ideas 
forward about what the Marine view of the operating environment of 2035 is like. Because they invest a lot of resources and a lot of time to you know, come up with their uh, strategic environment forecast, uh, synthesizing and, and, and using original thinking to you know, build the world of, of 2035. But it's not often that people will make time to read something that's, that's a white paper. Uh, Max Brooks, who's a Atlanta Council fellow and, and, and a great writer who did World War Z and, and, and his Minecraft book is actually good, too. Uh, it's very good, too. Um, he, he calls white papers printed ambient. And I always laugh when I say that because I've written my fair share and still do. But the idea, though, that, you know, you really need to think about different ways to engage people than the, the status quo. And, and I think, you know, you're, you're always kind of challenged too generationally to figure out what is the best way to communicate with the youngest uh, members, the per- people who are first getting their toes, you know, into the door uh, in an organization and trying to understand what is the culture, what, what do I have to offer and how is it valued? Um, because the kinds of gifts and skills, whether they are you know fit into an MOS or whether they are are something that aren't easily quantifiable or, or categorized, can be incredibly valuable, and you know, particularly in wartime. And, and this goes back to your to your point about zero defect and, and the World War II kind of construct for this. In my kind of feeling of imperative today to allow this rampant experimentation, because you're going to have to do it in a great power conflict, and and the, the stop you know we need to kind of stop pretending that we can kind of can do so in an orderly way if we, in the Pacific, get into an engagement with, with say, China or, or some other scenario that, that really tests us in that manner. Um, there's a few books, nonfiction books, because I, I like to read nonfiction as much as I do sci-fi, that I've recently enjoyed. Uh, one was about the founding of the SAS by Ben McIntyre called Rogue Heroes. Another is a history of the Flying Tigers, uh, which was the unit led by Claire Cheneau uh, right at the outbreak of World War II uh, in China. Um, and, and what they have done, I think, in those two books particularly, was really show that people who do not fit the organizational models of military success can, can have tremendous strategic impact, uh, often when they have been written off by the uh, senior leaders or kind of the bureaucratic expectations of the day. And, and I think the really valuable lessons there uh, in those stories uh, for understanding how you know, somebody who literally you know, couldn't meet the standards for discipline in the British Army could transform land warfare uh, in, in not only North Africa, but Europe by pioneering special operations, uh, you know, airborne and, and ground operations. Uh, or, you know, Claire Snow coming up with some of the craziest kind of constructs for, you know, contractors, mercenaries, whatever you want to call them, um, you know, is, is more or less uh, a deniable uh, on slash off the books operation to, you know, get the U.S. involved in the war in the Pacific before it really was ready, uh, but that actually felt like it needed to be. So, so you know, this, this idea of experimentation of a long leash, you know, and, and greater risk tolerance, is, it's really important. And, and fiction allows us to, to do so, uh, to kind of showcase that in a fairly safe way, bureaucratically, without people having to kind of put their uh, ideas in a PowerPoint, for example, that, you know, gets, gets an angry note from the boss or comes up uh, against the kind of uh, antibodies that that most uh, really creative ideas naturally elicit. And that, when you say that, I naturally think of the inherencies of the procurement process, the DOD procurement process. Bill mentioned the Hill as a constraint. So your piece here in the May proceedings, Automated, Automated Valor, takes place in April of 2039, so roughly 20 years in the future. <clears throat> we think back 
you know, 1984 when it was written. I'm not, I can't remember exactly, but in the 50s, right? They, we imagined that that the world would be so much different by the time we got to 1984. You know, I think the Jetsons takes place in like, you know, 20 something. You know, uh, so 2039 is not that far down the road in terms of five-year defense plans and in terms of the procurement cycle. We look at how long the F-35 has been part of the program of record. We look at how the spiral development of LCS has been sort of hit or miss. Um, so, uh, August, I don't know how intimately familiar you are with the vagaries of the procurement process, but what would you recommend as a futurist and an innovative thinker that are maybe some of the immediate action items that could be done to that process to speed the rate at which innovation reaches the warfighter? You know, as a reporter, I wrote a lot about what goes wrong in procurement um, and and was often starved for examples of things that were going great, uh, and and there have been <laughs> there have been a few out there. Um, Dan Ward is a former Air Force officer, now works at MITRE, has written a couple of books on innovation, uh, and and he worked specifically in Air Force acquisitions. And you know, one of the things that that, that he has espoused is that the FAR, you know, the, the Federal Acquisition Regulations, have enough leeway right now for people to be far more innovative than they. Um, his his recommendations are ones that are informed by more experience than I have, but really resonate with what I encountered as a reporter, which was smaller budgets, smaller teams, much faster cycles of uh, turnaround can produce far more innovation than uh, you know too big to fail efforts that are as tied up in politics as they are in actual you know weapons production. I think there's a really interesting moment though now because we're sort of in a post-industrial warfare. Uh, era where the really decisive technologies aren't necessarily going to come from, you know, a manufacturing line in Pennsylvania or a fighter line in Texas. They may come from an algorithm that's developed, you know, in a, in a backyard in, in the East Bay of San Francisco. Um, you know, our understanding of what that means for how we create opportunities for innovators of that sort to bring their ideas to a force as large and budgeted as the U.S. military is, is really, really challenging. Um, I think, you know, when you think about how we acquire, I think shortening and simplifying the requirement cycle is critical. I think oversight probably needs to be lessened, but having more accountability at the same time, I think is important. Creating tolerance and room for failure is easier if you're spending less money, you know, paradoxically. I mean, it makes sense, but it's not necessarily the thing that we often see as an attribute for uh, myriad smaller programs versus larger iceberg-like ones. So I, I think some of those those you know, instances where we think about this problem as being too big to handle in the first place are are wrong. I think it is within our power because again, you know, back to the ghost fleet sort of way we took this question and said we're going to have to look to non traditional sources of innovation for operational advantage to Silicon Valley to work the work part of the workforce that has industrial knowledge that that the next generation of, of kind of post millennials is not going to have you know bending metal um, you know we're going to have to be thinking about that and that the best ideas may not come from the biggest companies and and that's not the way Washington is wired obviously and the innovation and, and development that comes from uh, you know the, the traditional players in the, in the field are going to be there for reasons that are traditional but also because there's actual real innovation being done there too which is good uh, but we have to create, I think, a bigger tent, if you will, and efforts like DIUX are good. Uh, I think the different services, SOCOM, obviously have their own approaches to, you know, Softworks, Affworks, uh, et cetera. And I think the more top cover those can be given, 
uh, not even necessarily a lot more money, but some, uh, is as important as anything. Um, because that's the kind of innovation that, that I expect you would have to see in a crisis. And the more we can kind of operate like we are in a crisis and not uh, finding things along, uh, the better off we will be to both deter, but also be ready should, you know, should the, the un, kind of the unthinkable happen. Um, that's always in the back of my mind is, you know, how would this process, how would this procedure square up in a time of great exigency? If you had to build a ship in, in three to six months, you know, how would we do that? Uh, that's a really profound question for American shipbuilding right now that does not have a comfortable answer. Yeah, and at the height of World War II, we were rolling a ship off the yards one a day, the Liberty ships, one a day, which is just, uh, yeah, when you compare that to how long it takes us to build anything for the U.S. Navy right now, it's it's staggering, right? And the, the, the capacity that that requires is, uh, is uh, almost unimaginable right now. Hey, um, we need to wrap up here, uh, August, but one of the things I wanted to point out to our listeners, uh, and I also give you credit because you helped us find her. So when we read your piece, Automated Valor, uh, the staff loved it, uh, and we, uh, you know, immediately thought about how do we get this in the magazine. We came up with this idea that we would put a couple pages in as a teaser in the print magazine. All of it's online. Uh, we went out to you. We said, hey, do you have any ideas for uh, illustrating the, 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 the story? Uh, it's, it's easy to illustrate a story about, um, you know, U.S. Navy tactics in 2018 right now. We can find lots of pictures from Navy.mil, but looking at, you know, uh, what this uh, marathon high-speed vehicle would look like in 2039 uh, inside a parking garage fighting in combat with Chinese bots, uh, you know, a little bit harder. And you helped us find this amazing artist, uh, Alex J. Brady. She's in Great Britain. Uh, she did the original artwork. There was a lot of iteration back and forth with her. Uh, she does her artwork uh, on the computer. So it's computer generated uh, by an artist. Uh, we've got a, a opening page spread, page 68, 69, and then uh, another piece of art where it's almost a diagrammatic uh, sketch of what this uh, marathon vehicle looked like. Uh, I started following her on Twitter because she's constantly posting really cool futuristic a lot of it is military um you know oriented what future military vehicles aircraft uh, weapon systems might look like it uh, she's just terrific so alex j brady uh, for our listeners I, I recommend that you uh find her website follow her on twitter facebook uh and and go to our uh website you can see the artwork that she came up with for automated valor it's uh it's very cool stuff so um, August, we got to wrap up. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, we met at West back in February. It was great to have you on our uh, future-looking uh, panel on warfare. Uh, you just mentioned DIUX, and there was the, the captain who runs the DIUX unit out there. He was another member of the panel. So was uh, Amir Hussein, who uh, is now associated with you through uh, Spark Cognition. Uh, we talked about, you know, perhaps you writing for Proceedings. You gave us this uh, article, which became, uh, you know, in the May issue of Proceedings, became a reality. And, and the first piece of short fiction we'd had in Proceedings for, I don't, I don't know how long, but, it, you know, quite some time. time. And uh, for us, helped break the paradigm. And I hope we, we can have more short fiction, more by you and by others uh, in, the, in the coming months and years. Uh, so thanks for joining us on the podcast, and uh, we look forward to interacting with you again in the future. I think our conferences folks said that you are going to be one of the panelists during the Naval History Conference here in Annapolis on October 10th. 
Well, this was great to be on the, the podcast, and thank you again for, for giving a platform for, for not just my work, but the other writers who, who, who are uh, working in the in the narrative domain. And, and yes, I will be down in Annapolis uh, for the conference. Uh, it's going to be a talk called Thinking the Unthinkable, How Fiction and Other Narratives Can Teach Us About Future Conflict with China. I'm really looking forward to, uh, to that. Fantastic. We'll have to have you on the podcast live while you're here. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah. Absolutely. Have you in our fantastic studio facility. I look forward to it. Yeah, we're in Studio C today. C, yeah, it's C. Fred's old office. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's pretty lo-fi, but, you know, we make do. Yeah. All right, well, that wraps up uh, Episode 35. Uh, yet another great example of how victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute. Have a good week. We'll see you next time.